Hey everyone, I've got some exciting news. We're unlocking Southpaw Deep Space Nine Season 2 and making it available for everyone on our public feed. But if you love our work and want to be the first to listen to Season 3 as it's being released, head over to Patreon. There you'll find break-free versions of past SDS9 episodes, Southpaw and Fight Study, and our other bonus show, Fighters Brew. You'll also find our Liberation Martial Arts program, which is exclusive to our supporters. It's for beginner and advanced martial artists, as well as people just looking for fitness and rehabilitation. It's a gentle, wholesome, and embodied approach to training. Lots of individuals, trainers, families, friends, collectives, activists, and organizations are already using it. So if you want to support our work, and get early access to all our great content, including Season 3 of SDS9, go to patreon.com slash southpawpod and join our community. You can also go to southpawpod.com and find the links there or on our show notes. Thanks for listening and catch you soon. This is Southpaw Deep Space Nine, Season 2, where we analyze Deep Space Nine and Star Trek from a political and historical lens, episode by episode, even the middle ones. I'm watching DS9 with fresh and non-fan biased eyes, and Scott is the veteran Trek fan who knows more about all things Star Trek. We are discussing Season 2 of DS9, Episode 13. Armageddon Games. Scott, can you tell us about this episode? Yes, I can. I thought you'd never ask. So we start. O'Brien and Bashir are helping the Talani and Kellerun destroy the Harvesters, which are these biological weapons that have been at the center of a war between the two. Pretty much it's an analog of atomic bombs. This will create peace. O'Brien has destroyed the relics and the information of the harvesters and info to create them as well, so no one will be able to make them ever again. And it is thought that the harvesters are disarmed and destroyed. Everyone looks upon the remaining ones. They are neutralized but not destroyed. Title card. Miles and Bashir and all these people are ready to celebrate. They have destroyed all but one cylinder. And they talk about how, the, how these weapons have killed so many people. And it'll be really wonderful for the future of society to get rid of these weapons. And then two Kalaroon show up and shoot all but Mashir. That's a portmanteau of Miles and Bashir, who transport away. Except the ambassadors of both show up at the station and they believe all are dead. They say that everyone passed away. O'Brien tripped a device and caused an accident. They watch a recording of it. 
O'Brien and Bashir find themselves in the Talani base, want, and they want to alert everyone that the Calroons have destroyed the treaty. Of course, they find a comm system, but of course it's broken. So then we go to, you know, Cisco and the team reviewing the video. It shows this radio radiation device that wipes away everybody, like uh, vaporizes. And they're like, all right, we have to tell Federation. We have to tell Keiko. Then we go back to O'Brien and Bashir. They're trying to make the system work, and they start to argue. Bashir starts talking about women and starts being Dr. Horny for a moment. He reveals that he was in love once, and then they have a discussion about monogamy and family and having family in the Federation and whether it's not fair to have family in the Federation. And Bashir notes that, you know, throws a little shade at O'Brien about him and Keiko's relationship because, you know, Keiko is teaching when that's not exactly what she wants to be doing. and, And he assumes that there's some tension in the relationship because of that. But then Bashir notices that O'Brien is sick. He has harvester radiation. He's he's dealing with radiation sickness, and they don't have the means to take care of him there. So then we get back to the station. Cisco informs Keiko, and when she immediately sees Cisco, she has a feeling, and she has to be left alone. She's like, I want to see the video. We see that O'Brien is worsening. And has it now has to talk Bashir through making the comm system work. We go back to the station, and a rare moment of complex niceness, Quark offers a toast with Kira and Dax, and he says, uh, you know, they were good customers, and they always paid their tab, which apparently is one of the highest regards <laughs> of the Ferengi culture. Um, so Keiko's like, I need to see Cisco. She's like, in the video, Miles is drinking coffee in the afternoon. He never drinks coffee in the afternoon. He's not a big coffee drinker. This is important later. Not in the morning. And he would never do that. The video must be altered. They go, you know, Bashir starts talking about love and Miles is getting sicker. And Bashir explains that he chose his career over love. He he was in a relationship that was important to him, but he when given the choice, he chose work. And Miles is getting much worse. He can't feel his legs. Cisco wants to view the ship that Miles and Bashir were on. The comms are starting to work, and Miles and Bashir send a distress signal. If they get home, Miles will be able to, you know, heal. Uh, the Talani see the signal. When they get to the ship, Cisco asks about the video. Dax notices. Time has been erased from the ship. And then the Talani and Kalaroon show up to where Miles and Bashir's are. They agreed that in the interest of peace and the interest of their people, all who knew of the harvesters and how they worked and could potentially build more had to die. So they killed everyone on the ship and were planning to kill them. So they're like, you, you got to die right now. And they put them up for a firing squad. Miles insists on standing. That's when, at the last moment, they are transported on a runabout with Cisco. And they're trying to go back to the station, and Talani and Kalaroon threaten. And they're like, "We, if we have to, we'll blast you guys. 
you're going to go. We need this. This is how this has to be. Um, and they shoot, they shoot the running runabout, even though that they know that they're going to start a war with the Federation. But what we don't realize is that Cisco and the fam, they warp last minute and we get back. Miles is healing. We really start to see the beautiful bromance of Miles and Bashir. It strengthens. And then in a, you know, sort of like very 90s TV moment, we find out that Miles sometimes does drink coffee in the afternoon. (laughs) So, as you know, there were some silly moments in this episode, like seeing soldiers storm the lab with guns. And one of the scientists says, hey, guns aren't allowed in here. (laughs) But with that said, some of the sad moments and the acting by the crew gave me chills. The actors are often working beyond the writing. Oh, and this, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I will say that this episode, while definitely one of them episode of the week episodes, had some really strong performances and some nice character development. I think especially from Keiko, we saw some strong moments. Cisco and O'Brien and Bashir, and then even a little bit with Pork and Dax. So we all got to see like, hey, they can do a full range of acting if they need to. Just come on, writers, <laughs> give them something. Avery Brooks was a stage actor because, um, you know, that's what they were trying to, when they were casting for the show, they, they were like, oh, well, Jean-Luc Picard, Patrick Stewart, is a stage actor that's really working. So let's find someone who has stage acting chops, even though he was, he obviously had done some television, but both like really celebrated actors do Shakespeare and stuff. Now this episode, the DS nine crew are dealing with deep fakes, but also the knowingness of family, how your family members or your loved ones know you in a different way than your coworkers know you. And I liked some of the commentary on companionship. And there was also commentary about altered videos, the deep fakes, and what consequences they will cause. Even in the future, we haven't figured out a good way to detect fake videos. And even now, we really don't. Blockchain was supposed to be one way by creating a continuous signal log that will show you if there's been any breaks or alterations in the signal. But it's basically lost a message and it's now about making money off of monkey pics. But as far as altered videos and photos, these are questions we'll continue to grapple with in real life. But there was also more time to see Bashir contrasted with O'Brien. We had the ups and downs in this episode. In the last episode, we talked about class distinctions and O'Brien being toxic. But this episode, it was Bashir showing more of his arrogance and class, and he got pretty toxic, which I'm glad they're giving us that layer to him, that all his problems isn't just all misguided innocence, so that then you can give the character an opportunity to grow. There was also an interesting philosophical question in this episode, and that's what really this episode was about. Nuclear disarmament. Yeah, but also what's the best way to get there? A note to our listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, 
please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, like early releases of Southpaw Deep Space Nine, our fictional narrative podcast, Fighters Brew, break-free versions of our shows without interruptions like you're hearing now, bonus articles, Fighters Brew transcripts with extra content, Liberation Martial Arts Online, as well as our private chat group on Discord. You can also make one-time donations at Ko-Fi or show your solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. Normally in stories like this or in real life, the powers that be kill as cover-up to commit more war crimes. But in this story, it's killing to prevent more war crimes. You can't just destroy Pandora's box. You also have to destroy the box makers as well if you want to eliminate the threat. The U.S. did the opposite and tried to save all the German and Japanese weapons and bioweapons scientists and war criminals before the Soviets found them so that their knowledge could live on for all the opposite reasons and intentions of peace that this episode was showing us. Which is why the U.S. didn't want peace. They didn't want symmetrical power, but to have a military advantage, to have knowledge other countries didn't have. Everything that was the antithesis of peace outlined in this episode is what the U.S. did. They even dropped two nuclear bombs when the war was basically already over. And like Scott mentioned, the harvesters were an allegory for nuclear bombs, along with the title, right? Armageddon Game. The most dangerous game. (laughs) Yes. The disease itself almost looked like radiation poisoning, to your point. Yeah, it was totally radiation poisoning. Even if the original nuclear scientists die and the initial bombs are destroyed, so long as the knowledge exists, you can make more nukes. So it's not about what O'Brien and Bashir will do, but more about what happens if that knowledge continues to exist. If it continues to exist, eventually more people could end up knowing, and then from there keep spreading, and it's an arms race all over again. So that was the moral dilemma of this episode. The show ended with no one really being judged and kind of being like, well, we understand where everyone is coming from. That's why the Federation didn't go after the two aliens of the week and the aliens of the week just kind of let them go. And there are a lot of tough moral questions when we think about the future we want to create. Lots of people look at decisions by past revolutionary movements without considering the actual moral dilemma and context they were coming from. This episode had to make the harvester seem like it could destroy the world, but then it also couldn't let a main cast member die, so they had to make the virus easy to cure. That could have been a more interesting way to end it, to be like, you don't need to worry about this knowledge because we'll give you the antidote. Once there's an antidote that cures this problem that is not as threatening as they're concerned about, right? But for the planet, this could be not just an analog about nuclear weapons, but also nuclear waste and also waste and climate crisis and pollution in general. And the antidote for that is green socialism, but the rulers of this world don't want the solution because they don't actually want peace. Going back to all the examples I gave before, these two aliens of the week actually seem like they wanted peace. 
which was nice to see. They were willing to do something violent to get to peace. They understood even, it seemed like, the moral equation, that they understood they would be bad people. But they're like, I'm willing to be bad people to make sure that this greater bad thing doesn't happen. I'm not saying that what they were saying was right. That's why it's a dilemma. A dilemma means you don't know what the right answer is, but that is the context they were coming from. Whereas in real life, it's often, fuck peace. I want that advantage. I want to be able to weaponize something so that I always have power over you. So this was ultimately about symmetry between the two alien races where neither one of us have an advantage, then we're even, it's easier to maintain peace. But when there's asymmetries, then one can exert power over the other, right? This is why Western powers have always wanted that asymmetrical power. And so even if there's an antidote to our climate crisis or whatever, why would they want that, right? We want that, but then symmetry, a cure, eliminating that advantage where some people can live in air conditioning in a nice place and not have to worry about the oceans rising and other people do, then the people who have that power, who don't have to worry about that, why would they want to give up that position? This position is powerful because you're not in this position. So I've created this scarcity. And from there, I could benefit even more. I could create interest out of nothing. And my real estate in this prime area of being sheltered from all the world disasters keeps going up in price. So it's about increasing that wealth. It's about increasing that gap. It's about increasing asymmetries. That's what capitalism is all about. That's what power is all about, which is why power, the natural extension of it over time, of course, would lead to capitalism and capitalism leads to imperialism, or at least a new capitalist version of imperialism. But the way the episode ended with the comedic husband and wife ending, I did like that. What did you think about the overall storytelling of this episode? So much like some of these episodes that try to stuff meaning into an episode of the week sort of thing, I was struggling with what they were trying to say. Uh However, I, I did enjoy the episode of the episodes that we've been going through recently. I didn't mind this one. I give it, it's a solid three of a non, non mythology episode. Would you base a lot of that three on the performances? Absolutely. I mean, uh, Rosalind Chow, who plays Keiko and Cole Meany, who play Miles, like their performances together in that last scene and just, and apart was enough, but also just everybody was just kicking ass. Mm-hmm. from an acting standpoint and having that development of Bashir. We know a bit of Miles because Miles was a character from the Enterprise brought on to give a little continuity and to get, you know, just in case to get people to watch. So we know him a little bit, but we, we you know, in this show, we really get to, to know him even better. So to really get to know him this episode and see him vulnerable which is hard for him and yeah as you were saying earlier like unpacking some of the toxicity of Bashir and also seeing where some of it comes from like their acting you could just it was just yeah it was just a, an episode where the acting took it 
to a next level. And while the idea of nuclear disarmament in media is not new, you know, I'm sure people that are you, you and my age can remember that terrible Superman movie, The Quest for Peace, Superman 4. <laughs> I kept thinking about that. <laughs> yeah. So from like the original Superman movies from the 80s, where uh, Christopher Reeves plays Superman, and he he decides that he's going to end nuclear weapons. And I'm sure our younger audience may not know that reference. But if you watch this episode, you, it would be hard for you if you didn't have that context to think about that episode. And I remember when my father was alive, rest in peace, this was a conversation we would talk about, you know, because I was, I was in high school and I was discovering political science and history. And we would talk about World War II and we would talk about atomic weapons and we would talk about how a lot of power stands on countries who have, countries who don't, countries who might, and countries that could. And and this goes now. You know, right now, if you're listening around the time that these episodes are made or in the past, we are in a sort of a stalemate with Russia over Ukraine and other things. And much of that has to do with the fact that we both have a considerable amount of nuclear power. And if there was a way, if if there was a way, well, you know, if you just killed 30 people, well, in this, in our world, a lot of people would have to die for nuclear weapons and the knowledge of them to go away. But would you do it? If you could, if, if you could promise that nuclear war and war on that magnitude could never happen again, would you? These are pragmatic questions. I'm not interested in answering the question because I'll never have to answer the question. I don't particularly like these questions, but it's a question that you're asked. And I'm sure the, the, the writers of this episode thought they were being deep by positing this and by giving us a quirky and thoughtful version of this time. Yeah. And also, they showed us a scenario where there was like only one moment you could have made that decision, right? Like the scenario we're talking about now, there'd be too many people. Whereas in that early moment where it was just a handful of people, then that kind of decision is realistic, right? Once it became more than a handful and now you got like thousands and then it keeps spreading and it gets on the internet or whatever, then it's, it's too late, right? So that's why that was actually a practical question for those two alien races to think about and so probably they deliberated on that for a while and they decided the only way we could do this, we got to kill everybody, that small handful of people to prevent the deaths of like many more in the future or whatever. So that's why it was so important for them to not let them get away. They're like, okay, once they leave here, it's over. There's no point. And that's why once they escaped and like, we didn't get them, they didn't pursue it anymore because it's like, okay, it's out there. So let's now leave it up to fate and hope for the best, right? But that was that opportunity. Now we're not even just talking about philosophical question, but like a matter of strategy. That is that window that you could have implemented something like that. So I think this episode was also dealing with that. If you're part of this very early on, where it's only now instead of a million people or whatever people who could have that knowledge is just like five people. Now, what do you do, right? 
again, it's not so much about the answers or having the answers, but it's about addressing the question that's actually at hand, right? And so these are the questions that we can pull from the past, but also versions of this question will keep popping up in the future. And like I said, when we are thinking about a world that we want to create, these are also scenarios we have to think about. And it just gets very scary, especially as technology gets more and more powerful, how how easy it would be to get some of these ideas and things into people's hands. And so I already, like I do, if there's something that does keep me up at night, it is particularly, you know, another world war, even though there is a lot of violence in this world right now. But the thought of, of that sort of thing, just it does keep me up at night from time to time. And also the way knowledge works and spreads is even if they don't know the actual blueprint, let's say you destroy the blueprint. If people know that something like that is possible, then now it's even easier to get there even from scratch because it's like a long math equation. If you know what the answer is, you could figure out how to get there. It's like any great touchstone, even when the runner Usain Bolt ran the fastest 100 meter dash. Now people are running that speed now because they're able to study the technique. And once you get to places, you find out that you can go to places. It's pretty amazing what what humans can do. Very adaptable. I think even the history of nuclear weapons and splitting the atom was like that, where once somebody figured out this was possible, it started speeding up really quickly getting there. Yeah. The Pandora's box isn't even just about how to make the box. It's also about if people know the box can even exist in the world, then they could actually make it from scratch much quicker than having to come up with that idea from scratch. These are all things that this episode touched upon in a fun way. Didn't have time to expand on all of it or even like the question about fake videos. Didn't really have a chance to really explore that too deeply either. This is also an example, you know, we, we were watching that episode a couple of weeks ago about, you know, about refugees. And now this is like an episode about nuclear weapons. These, these were very popular topics to talk about in the nineties. Like it was, this was like deep to talk about it. Scott, can you tell us a bit about the next episode? The next episode is called Whispers, and O'Brien gets paranoid. <laughs> Until then.